From our New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And Zach, before we jump into today's, into today's topic, wow, I can't speak today. What is going <laughs> on with me? Oh, it's September. I can't handle it. Um, before we get into today's topic, um, you know, anything really just – you know, any fights you want to pick, any things you want to complain about? I mean, I know sometimes it said we, we complain a little bit too much, but you do do a lot of fighting on Twitter, I got to say. I've been noticing. I like to be feisty. I, it's funny, actually, today's, uh, today's topic and conversation came out of a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a fight. I was going to bring that up. I was going to bring that up. A conversation with... Uh, you, you say tomato, I say fight. It's fine, <laughs> you know? Well, I have a, I have a, a totally, uh, I have a question for you because I think it's it's a current I don't know, not fight exactly, but it's a topic of conversation. Do you consider this time of the year fall or summer? It's summer. Okay. So you are a, you are a traditionalist in terms of, you know, fall starts on October, on September 22nd or whatever the, the you know, whatever yeah, after for the, the I mean, it's look, while it's still 88 degrees here in New York City, it's summer. <laughs> Like that's just we got to be real about that, right? I mean, Fair until enough. it's until it's cool and there's, you know, and actual leaves changing and stuff like that. For me, it's not really fall. Um, but you know, I mean, other people are already drinking pumpkin spice lattes. So who am I to judge? I guess. Well, I mean, you're the host of the Vine Pear podcast, so that's kind of our job, I think. You, you know what I think we were talking about? You know what we think would be brilliant? Someone needs to come out with a pumpkin spiced white claw. Well, I guess white claw or a pumpkin spice seltzer. That person's going to make a lot of money. I, that's interesting because I feel like those two things are like just incongruous enough. Like, I don't know, maybe maybe we'll see if the summer of White Claw becomes like the winter of White Claw. I kind of doubt it. But like maybe it will be a like maybe it will be enough of a of a persistent trend that, yeah, the like fall and winter seasonal flavors will, will become a thing. I don't know. Nick, would you, yeah. would you or as a resident White Claw drinker, would you drink a pumpkin spice White Claw? My curiosity would get me to drink it. Yeah, okay. Maybe buy a twelve pack. He would, of course, he would. Dude, he would do. He would do a great. I mean, take it to the, the slopes. Thing. You like, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that a pumpkin spiced spark. Like no one saw the spiked or hard seltzer boom coming, and I think it exploded this summer. And I think the way it, it keeps it keeps itself going is you're going to see in like mark my words, two to three weeks, someone's going to put out a pumpkin spiced spiked seltzer. I just or hard seltzer, however you're call, however we're calling it these days, whatever the kids are saying, that's what's going to happen, and it's going to keep this thing going through the fall. Nick is going to be like a pig and shit and have a great time. Just really love this hard seltzer. And then wintertime, can we get like a white claw hot toddy or something? Can they come? See, up he's already on brand. Oh man, <laughs> oh, God, just, feel, it's this is too good. I feel gross. This is too already. good. I was going to go with like a peppermint spice uh, white claw. That just sounds horrible. <laughs> oh, so ridiculous. So let's go back though to your fights on Twitter, Zach, because I think this is this is more interesting. So my, I myself hate Twitter. I think it's just very a fair, very silly platform uh, where basically it's just a bunch of journalists and other people um, fighting. And you know, although us, I am Adam, a journalist, I don't. I don't feel the need to fight on Twitter, so I, I'm not a part of it. But you pick lots of fights on Twitter. And I will say you had probably the tamest fight I've ever seen recently where you had a conversation with the chief uh, restaurant critic of the New York Times, Mr. Pete Wells, about um, critics including not including beverage professionals in their reviews. So do you want to give us a little synopsis of, of that little, little tiff you got into? 
I do, yeah. So so this was prompted by me being bored one day and reading, as I sometimes do, going back and reading older reviews, uh, Pete's older reviews in the New York Times, because I think he's a tremendous food writer. And, you know, obviously anyone who's in that position is going to have a lot of um, power and a lot of authority. But I think Pete really does a great job of I think just in general, casting a really interestingly wide net of the restaurants he reviews. Um, I mean, he got a lot of press early on in his tenure for reviewing Guy Fieri's American Disaster or whatever it's called in Times Square. Um, but in general, like I think he just does a really nice job of of covering a lot of different kinds of restaurants and not just focusing on um, the really big name restaurants in New York, of which there are plenty opening at any given time. But one thing that caught my eye was he had he had done a review of a relatively new restaurant called Seven Hundred One West, um, and the uh, beverage director for that restaurant company, Amy Racine, I think is a really talented person um, who's put together a really amazing program. And their program there is really, the, the restaurant is really wine focused in a lot of ways. And so it seemed odd to me that in that review, which spent a couple of paragraphs talking about the wine program, she doesn't even get mentioned. And and to me, that's not, that's just a symptom of a larger issue in this industry, which is despite the fact that, you know, alcohol and beverage programs are often the driving factor behind profitability for a lot of restaurants, beverage professionals tend to not get mentioned. You know, that review mentioned not just the chef owner, but also this, the chef de cuisine, the person basically running the kitchen on a day-to-day basis, and the pastry chef. And let's be honest, like, the pastry chef's fine, but, like, desserts are not going to make or break any kind of restaurant. Like, they're not something that every table orders. I mean, granted, neither is alcohol, but your check average is not going up big time because of your desserts. And yet, the pastry chef got mentioned by name in the piece. And I'm sure they're very talented and I'm sure the desserts are great. But when you spend three paragraphs talking about the beverage program and yet don't mention the person who is responsible for it, I found that a little bit odd and said as much. And I said, you know, again, it wasn't actually, despite what Adam has, how he's phrased it, I wasn't trying to start a fight. I was just trying to start a conversation. Disagreement. Well, I wanted Pete to respond, which he did, and I appreciated that. And we had a conversation about it. You can go look it up on Twitter if you want. It was, I think, very cordial. And I think there's a a reason, you know, there's reasonable disagreement here about how, you know, how, you know, for one, how many people uh, involved in running the restaurant should be named in a review and and how how we should, you know, treat beverage professionals and whether the average reader is interested in knowing who those people are in the way that we assume they are um, with the chef. But, you know, Adam, we actually have a guest who can shed some really – useful light on this, not just the two of us who don't do this for a living, who don't review restaurants for a living. Um, So we have the real privilege of being joined by Hannah Raskin, uh, who's the food editor and chief critic for the Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina. So start us off with this basic understanding of as as someone who writes restaurant reviews, where and when do you choose to mention people who run the establishment or parts of it? Like, how do you generally kind of approach that? Yeah, that's really interesting. I knew we were going to be talking about drinks and reviews. I didn't realize that we were going to be talking about the people responsible for them. And so I'm just furiously now catching up with your Twitter feed. Um, (laughs) Interesting. I I would like never name the drinks person, almost never, um, because generally readers don't care. I'm really thank you, thank you, thank you. And listen, I'll tell you why the different, well, two things. So one, I think that is a sad reflection on what's happening in the restaurant industry, that if people need the recognition of a critic name-checking them, they need to be getting that recognition elsewhere I, I, because the readers don't care. They really don't. And largely because if you have a pastry chef, they might say, oh, you know, I had Jim's desserts at that place and I haven't been able to have them since. I'm so glad Jim is working again and Jim does something with caramel that I've never seen anywhere else. 
for a reader, the wine director is or just buying wine that they could probably get somewhere else. And so they certainly bring a point of view to the menu. They, I mean, there's, they're responsible for the service in the restaurant. But that name isn't going to register with readers the way that possibly probably the names of the wines on the list are. They really just so, don't care. So I, I completely agree with you. Um, and I know I, when Zach, when you and I were talking about having this discussion, I said that I was definitely going to have a differing opinion as you. Um, and I agree a lot with what Pete responded uh, to to your tweets, which was basically for those who haven't read the the, the thread, and we discussed this a lot in the office after um, you brought up the topic, which was you know the only people that really ask for this recognition are the beverage professionals themselves. I will say, I do disagree. I guess slightly, the cocktail program. If it's a if it's a well known mixologist who's created cocktails that are very special, I think they should be named in the review. But but I do think. For Assam, right? Like, w- this is not, I learned this this morning because I had forgotten it, Zach, but like, you know, we're w- working on this really big piece right now for the publication about like what, you know, what the definition of a sommelier is. Well, so traditionally, a sommelier was the person that, you know, tasted wine for the king to make sure. Yeah. Well, it was, <laughs> it was to make sure that the wine wasn't poisoned for the king, right? That it's, it's, it's a, it's a humble service profession and it is putting together lists, but the person who put together the list didn't make the wine. And, I don't know why there's become a huge obsession with getting rock star credit in, in that part of the business, which I think like beverage professionals are super talented and they have skills that I'm not trying to dismiss. But I think when it's come, when it comes to a restaurant review, in my mind, I want to know who the chef is. I want to know who the pastry chef is. I want to know who made the cocktails exactly as Hannah's saying so that I could go and have those again somewhere else. But I just, I don't know why you would need to mention the beverage direct, like the, the psalm. I, I, I really don't. I don't think that that's the, that's the recognition that's needed for the review. Like also how often is the psalm really, you know, actively pairing each dish with the wine list? Like the wine list actually is, as you said, in order to drive sales for the restaurant. So you have to make sure that you have a well-structured list that has something for everybody and everyone's taste, whether or not those, that person's taste truly is in line with how what would pair perfectly with the dish. I mean, maybe I'm off base here, but this is sort of my perspective. And therefore, I kind of feel like, I don't know, you're the person who's creating a, a list for the people so that the restaurant can gain in sales and people find what they want. But when it comes to the review of the restaurant, I'm not really sure a, a, a wine list makes or breaks, gives that restaurant three stars instead of two. But I mean, Hannah, is that, I mean, is that... Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I mean, I think some of the feeling that came out of the whole Me Too movement was some of the celebrity stuff surrounding chefs didn't do anybody any good. I, exactly. I don't really see, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I don't see why building a cult of celebrity around beverage directors is any different in that regard. Well, so let me let me devil's advocate here, or at least defend my position in, in two different ways. The first is, I think there is a little bit of a circular logic thing going on here with with reviewers where they say, well, my readers don't care about this, but they don't care about it because they don't know who any of these people are. And if they're never mentioned, then then that's never going to change. And so I think that I'm not saying that every single restaurant review needs to have the name of every single person who's involved in any part of the dining experience named. I think that's ridiculous. It would be a waste of space. And I agree that in most cases, readers don't care. I just thought 
in particular, this review of 701 West, which obviously, Hannah, you didn't write, so I'm not asking you to defend it or not, but it's just was a situation where obviously a central component of the of the restaurant's whole concept was the wine program and the style of service and this idea of serving things in like black glasses to sort of like force people to really you know, kind of approach the wine from a neutral perspective. And if you're not going to talk about the person responsible for that, then you're really not, you know, in some way you're you're sort of misleading the the guest, the reader of the review about what who is responsible for what's going on there. I would also say that, like, there's a little bit of nonsense here where, like, the chef, if their name is in the review, with a few exceptions, they are probably not the person cooking the food. Your food is being cooked by someone whose name you will never know, who you'll never interact with. Whereas the sommelier, if they're actually on the floor of the restaurant, which isn't the case with all beverage directors, of course, but in many cases, the person running the wine program is actually on the floor. You as a diner might actually go talk to this person. So knowing who they are and understanding something about the idea behind the restaurant and their beverage program, if it's central to the conceit of the restaurant and isn't just a profit-making device – is, I think, useful information for readers because, again, you're not going to not meet the chef. I mean, you're not going to – even if they are cooking, they're probably real busy during service. Their job is not to serve guests. It's to prepare your food. And so, yeah, you might know their name, but I think it's useful information for guests in the places where it's relevant to know something about the person who is responsible for a significant portion of their experience should they choose to have it. But I also think, you know, I wanted to ask, and, and Hannah, this is sort of what I think you thought we were going to be talking about in, in part, yeah. and I do want to get to it, which is generally speaking, you know, I, I do think that it's a sometimes a, a just a, a conceit that I don't fully understand, which is that, you know, reviews focus um, a lot on food, as of course, you know, a restaurant is a, you know, largely a, a place where people go to eat, and almost everyone who walks in is going to have food of some sort. Not everyone's going to have an alcoholic beverage. But I do think it's, you know, I, I'm curious how you sort of strike that balance in your reviews of, you know, when and where do you talk about drinks, whether they're beer, wine, cocktails, whatever, and and how do you kind of, you know, portion out space? Because obviously, you know, column inches are a scarce resource in any, you know, print publication. Right. That's a great question. So I think, you know, I'm going to take drinks as seriously as the restaurant takes it. So obviously, you know, if all a restaurant offers is Bud Light, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it except to say that's what's on offer, right? Um, but if it's clearly a major component of of their character as a restaurant, yeah, I definitely want to want to look and see, you know, what is expressed by the wine list. Um it's interesting in terms of the wine list and cocktail list. I think every critic's situation is different, but at least for me, um, my budget is limited and it doesn't cover alcohol. So I can evaluate a wine list by looking and I can't do so with a cocktail list. So typically, you know, I'll have one or two, um, which I'm happy to pay for. So I have some sense of whether the drinks are coming out they're balanced. Um, again, do they express what the restaurant is trying to express? But I, I honestly just logistically cannot do as good of a job um, evaluating a cocktail list as a wine list because of budgets. Um, so, but yeah, again, if the restaurant thinks it's important, then I'm going to treat it like it's important. Look, I, I do think too, Zach, like that's why there are drinks publications like Vine Pair, you know, because we do write much more about the, a drinks program at a restaurant that, that's making great cocktails, or we do profile certain psalms if people want to know. But I, but I do have to agree with Hannah that I think when I'm reading a restaurant review, I, I'm not really looking for much of any of that information in terms of these names. And I think even in terms of, unless the chef is super famous, I don't even really care about that. I just want to know, like, 
you know, does the critic like this new fried chicken place that opened? Because I'm looking for good fried chicken in New York, and I, you know, I've yet to find great fried chicken, right? And so, if I trust their their taste, that's what I'm looking for is for them to tell me what's good with the food. Um, and so, I don't know, like, and I, I'm curious though, Hannah, like in terms of when you do go to evaluate the wine list, I, w- I want to use a restaurant that's in Charleston. We don't, I don't, I mean, because it's one that I found to be intimidating for other consumers. Like how, how much do you look at a restaurant like Husk and look at their wine list, which is based on soil composition and say, huh, as a critic, should I tell, should I decide whether or not I feel like this is a list that's intimidating or a list that would be over the heads of most consumers? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I, again, I come in, I write for a general audience and not everybody does. Some people, you know, have a very niche audience that, you know, if you're writing for a wine publication, that's different, but I write for a general audience. So the question is not just how did they choose to organize their wine list and did it make sense when they were, you know, planning the restaurant? How did they organize it? But then how do they present it at the table? Does the server understand what that means? Does, you know, does he know what, limestone does to the grape. You know, I mean, that that's the interesting part for me. And so that's what I'm going to write about. I'm not going to geek out about a Slovenian wine, you know, that's listed under a certain adjective. I mean, that doesn't mean much to my readers. But if exactly. they have created a list in such a way that it would connect an eater or a diner with something, a, 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 an experience they haven't had before, that's what I'm always looking for. So... Right. And maybe if and maybe if you discovered that kind of list, you might then mention who the person was that created it, potentially, if you thought it was so, you know, so so eye opening or accessible or whatever, but you probably wouldn't, and I think that's fine. I probably wouldn't. I mean, we're in a cool situation, Charleston. We're such a small market. We have a number of distributors and porters here um that are just based in Charleston. So the cool thing is like anything you drink in a restaurant here, you can buy at a store here. It's like a very small pool, right? And so that's fun that we can use our restaurants as ways to discover really cool wines and then go buy them, which is really neat. So yeah. I'd almost more I'm almost more likely to call out the distributor or the importer, um, because there are local guys too, and that way you know, people can be introduced to that. Hmm. Interesting. I, I'm I'm curious yeah. to one last thing about sort of this this idea of just generally how beverage programs are discussed in the context of of a review and, and your review specifically, Hannah. You know, do you hear from guests or I'm sorry, from readers who then go to dine at these places? You know, I'm sure you hear all the time from people who say like, oh, you know, you wrote this in your review and I had that dish and it sucked or it was way better than you thought or whatever. You know, I mean, all of us who write for a living get that kind of feedback. Um, and sometimes it's valid and sometimes it's frankly not. But I'm wondering, you know, do you do you ever hear from the other side, from the restaurant side that like, hey, you know, not not I'm sure they have lots of complaints about what you write or, or obviously positive things too. But but is it ever a kind of a, a topic of conversation in that back and forth with the restaurant of like, hey, we feel like you you either did or didn't represent this part of our experience Holy, because I do think that, you know, again, not not having actually ever been to Charleston, unfortunately, maybe I'll change that one of these days. Um, but, you know, not knowing the specifics of that scene, but but knowing sort of similar restaurant um, and bar scenes, I think there is, um, you know, this way in which a lot of people in those um, who work in those kind of communities, you know, really do, even if they don't necessarily need their name in print, you know, maybe it's just some of us who who like that kind of validation. There is a way in which I think a lot of it, it is frustrating to professionals. And I talked to, you know, a few different people kind of preparing for this podcast who I know in other parts of the, in, of the country, there is this sort of general feeling that like, hey, this very critical part to the restaurant's 
you know, not just success, not just bottom line, but also the guest experience is is rarely fully represented. And I understand totally that there are budgetary reasons for that and just practical considerations. You know, you can order in a couple of visits, you can probably order most things on most menus, but even a reasonably sized wine list, even if you were willing to spend your own money, you're only going to get into a couple of wines and, you know, in, in a couple of visits. So, so do you hear from the industry side in Charleston that, hey, you know, we would, you know, we wish you could have said more about you know, our cocktail program or our wine program or whatever, or, or people just kind of fine with, with the sort of, uh, you know, the, the distribution of, of, uh, column inches. I mean, I will say the thing about Charleston, this is a strange thing to say on the eve of a hurricane, but, um, people here don't like to make waves. So I rarely hear those kind of complaints, but that is unique to Charleston, I believe. I mean, this is a town, I was just going down the street today and someone had, we got a local election coming up and it was great. A restaurant had a, uh, a sign for both of the mayoral candidates. So that's Charleston for you. They, they're not going to, they're not going to complain. So it doesn't mean, that. it doesn't mean they're not unhappy, but. Yeah, I I don't hear about it too much. Okay, I have one last Charleston question. I don't know, Adam. Do you have a Do you have one more here? I mean, the only the only plug I have is that you know uh, Vine Pair is one of the sponsors of the Charleston Food and Wine Festival uh, this next year. We're we're super excited, and we're gonna be and we're gonna be you know down there hanging out. So I uh, I, I guess that means I should person, come. <laughs> yeah, you should check in. You know, it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be a fun time. But Charleston so, question goes. Yeah. So, well, so in that vein, I, we, we do when we, we have people who come on who, uh, from cities, especially cities that aren't, you know, like New York or whatever. Um, I always, we always love to get, um, a few recommendations for our listeners. And especially because obviously maybe not right at this exact moment, but Charleston's obviously a big tourist destination. And I know as a critic, you're a little bit in an awkward position because you probably, you know, you have to sort of, you know, r- remain somewhat impartial. But obviously there have been some, must have been some places that you have reviewed quite positively lately. Are there any, uh, you know, restaurants or other kinds of establishments that for our listeners who are either in Charleston or um, would be visiting there that you strongly recommend? Yeah, I'm super excited about a new place we have called Kinfolk, which is out on John's Island, um, which is a beautiful, beautiful spot. Um, And two brothers have opened this place. They're serving uh, fried chicken and they have a tremendous (gasps) wine list. Um, It's really fun. So, you know, you're having this sort of like esoteric Greek wine and really good fried chicken. Um, It's a little place. It's super casual, but like I said, the list is fun and the chicken's great. Oh man, I can't, I'm definitely going to go when I come. That sounds amazing. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Cool. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I I really appreciate your perspective. Um, not just because I 100% agree with it, but um, but I really do, I really do appreciate your perspective, and I really thank you, especially as the hurricane is bearing down on South Carolina. Um, please, everyone, be safe, and um, hopefully by the time we air this podcast next week, we will we will hear that there wasn't much uh, damage and that everyone was is okay. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks. So Zach, what do you think about what she said? I have to say, I, I really do agree with her. I don't, I don't, I don't think that in reviews there's the need to give all this credit to a bunch of different people. I, I think those in the know, it's great to know who's responsible. But at the end of the day, like she's, you know, the the restaurant critic, male, female, uh, you know, cisgender, non-binary, however you want to describe yourself, they are there to judge the food. 
and the overall experience, but like name checking a thousand people doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense in a restaurant review. And again, I, I do really mean this. Like if you care, that's what a publication like we are there for. We do write a lot about these beverage professionals and um, other publications do too, but in a, in a, you know, a, a very large, as she said, you know, publication that's a, usually a newspaper, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, look, I understand why there are very real considerations, both in terms of budget and in terms of, you know, lack of space in a paper, why beverage generally gets a bit of the short end of the stick when it comes to restaurant reviews. I mean, it it's not a thing that's unique to Pete Wells or Hannah Raskin or anyone else. You're right. The local publication is probably not going to devote a lot of time to to beverage alcohol. And that's, you know, whatever, fair. I think I stand by my, my two points, the first of which is that, like, I think if you are going to, if the beverage program, whatever it is, whether it's cocktails, wine, whatever, is a huge part of the point of the restaurant, then as a reviewer, I think you are doing your readers a disservice for, for one, obviously you need to discuss that in some detail. And you also probably need to say who it is because, you know, even if it's true that maybe the, the vast majority of your readers may never connect the name, uh, you know, may never know who that person is and the name may mean nothing to them. As I said, you're often likely to interact with that person if you actually go into the establishment. You're a hell of a lot more likely to interact with them than anyone who's actually cooking your food. And so it's important that people have some idea who that is. Now, sometimes that leads to annoyances as a, as the person in the restaurant where, you know, you're getting you know flagged down by every last table who wants to, you know, I've heard this from people who work the floor who are master sommeliers, you know, all of a sudden everyone coming, every last person coming in wants to talk to them because they want to say they met so-and-so, the master sommelier. And, you know, that's part of the cost of doing business. If you're, if that's your pro- job, you probably, you know, sort of budget your time such that you're not also having a bunch of other responsibilities during service. But I will also say that, like, I just, I don't know why, maybe it's because there was a lot of backlash to the celebrity chef thing. And so maybe, and even maybe the, you know, the celebrity bartender thing. But I do think that there's a little more to being the person who's in charge of a beverage program than just picking wines. Like, I get it from the outside. It looks like that. And and some people, that's all they do. I mean, there are a lot of people who run wine programs who buy wine for restaurants that, you know, don't put much effort into it. And that's usually pretty obvious when you look at the list. But, you know, obviously, you know, at VinePair, you know, we consider that job something interesting and worth talking about and that's why as you said you know vine pair profiles these people and and you know talks to them and interviews them and, and features their thoughts and their opinions pretty prominently throughout you know various parts of the of the media empire as it were and yes. i think it's important that restaurant reviews not fall too far behind the times you know i these don't are think they are falling behind are... the times though zach like, i think again like the restaurant review is a very different thing like it, it's not it's not a specialty publication. It's it's a review of a place and its food. And I think it's also really important to remember what Hannah was saying, which is that they don't go out with a lot of money to these to these review trips, right? She's able to basically try a bunch of different dishes, but not a lot of the wines. A lot of these, you know, wine programs where there's a master sommelier in the program, whatever, what everyone writes about is, oh my God, the seller list is so deep with all these baller bottles. I mean, how many times is someone like Hannah or Pete Wells or Sam Sifton or Frank Bruni or, you know, any of these very well-known restaurant critics ever getting to try those wines? Probably never, unless they're with a wealthy friend who's paying for those bottles. So at the end of the day, like, I do think that she's right. Like it it doesn't make any sense in a restaurant review to name check all these other professionals unless we're talking about the mixologist who created and made the cocktails. Like 
at the end of the day, it's cool. I'm sure that there's you know a really high quality manager and owner, et cetera, but those people don't get named either. And a lot of times the owner was the one who had the concept for the place in the first place and you know designed the whole space. And we don't name check the designer who, you know, basically redid the whole place. We're not it's like Studio Tech is a really well known design firm here in Brooklyn and they do lots of restaurants and hotels and I've never seen them named in a review. You know? I actually think that's interesting because that is something that I have seen more in reviews is is whoever is involved with the decor because I think reviewers are – maybe it's just because all they have to do is throw their name in there. They don't have to spend any of their own money to be able to cover it. But it does get mentioned more and more. I think if you – for me, when I read reviews, and I read a lot of them because I'm interested, th- that those sort of things – because we, we've come to recognize that there are a lot of elements to the dining experience. It's not purely about the food in that, you know, frankly – there's a lot of really good food out there. And so the the one thing that differentiates restaurants is not going to just be their food. It's going to be the, the whole of the experience. And while I agree with you that, you know, the point of what I was trying to say is not only that the that, that what critics need to do is include the name of every person who touches every element of the restaurant's concept and, and menu and beverage program and, you know, the person who does the prep, you know, work and all that. Of course not. But it's that generally speaking, you know, the the focus has been solely on the food and i think we all we would both agree i think that the dining experience as a whole is about a lot more than just the food and that what makes or breaks a restaurant experience for a lot of people isn't necessarily purely the quality Look, of the i mean food. what usually what usually breaks the experience for me is the food and the service but so if you're the person responsible for the service you know, we should say the service is excellent or not, but usually the person that gets name checked is the restaurateur who puts a, an emphasis on the service so if you know if the beverage director is part owner and head of service, then fine. But at the end of the day, you know, if you've created like that list is going to change. It's it's not you didn't make the wine. The winemaker made the wine. Like I just I don't I don't see why. Like I don't know a lot of diners who, as Hannah said, follow beverage directors from place to place. I know some wine collectors who do, but it's very it's a very small number. But I do know people who follow chefs, including beverage professionals, who say, I need to try this this chef's new place because I love their food. And that's at the end of the day what the you know the restaurant critic is doing. And I know people who follow winemakers because they love their wine. And I think we have to accept at the end of the day that like, you know, there's not a lot of people that follow you know, a lot of other people in, in the industry. And that's, that just is what it is, unless you're really interested in the specialization. And, you know, one of the topics I've wanted to talk about for a long time that I think we can talk about as another episode, because this was getting way too long, um, is, you know, is there a need for the celebrity psalm or the celebrity mixologist? Like, you know, what Hannah talks about is true. Like we do see sort of what happened with the celebrity chef and there has been a, a, a lot of ego. I mean, that ego's always existed in the kitchen, but like, is that good for the world of drinks to have these celebrities? And how does that work when it's, I mean, what do you, then how do you become a celebrity just because you're really good at creating a a list? I just don't understand how that's interesting. I mean, the end of the day, the power that comes from sommelier is if you're, if you run a massive restaurant empire and so you, you therefore have a large bankroll and you can buy a massive amount of wine. But the second, I mean, ask a lot. I mean, I'm sure you know this. Ask any beverage director of a large restaurant group who is no longer the beverage director of a large restaurant group and ask them how they're treated by the winemakers and whatever used to treat them like kings and queens. It's not as well anymore because they don't control a massive pocketbook anymore to be able to buy lots sure, of well, wine. That's- and we're getting we're getting way off topic here. But but, uh, but but that's why they don't. I mean, that's why you don't have to to mention them, dude. Like it's. I think the only people like as, as to go back to the beginning, the only people that really care are 
the people that think they should be mentioned. Like, I think that every time someone writes about Vine Pitcher, they mention my name. No. Like, it doesn't, it, it's, it's not diminishing anything that someone who works the floor is doing. It's not saying that your job is any less important or that you as a SOM is not an important role in the restaurant. But I, I do think that, like, as she said, there's very few people that care. And there's very few people that are really conscious of wanting to know that person's name. And for the most part, because in all honesty, even when I go to restaurants, that person is usually not there. It's usually fair a enough. junior Psalm on the floor. Yeah, fair enough. I'm not, I, I've, I've already made my, my thoughts known. So, you know, we can agree to disagree on this one. Cool. I mean, I appreciate you bringing her on. It was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And, uh, you know, if anyone has, I, I'd love to hear what the readers, uh, what the listeners think, not readers on either, on either side of this discussion, uh, you know, please shoot us an email at podcast.vinepair.com and let us know what you think. Do you agree with what uh, Hannah and I were saying or do you agree with what Zach's saying? And I think both opinions are valid. And, you know, we will share some of them on a future episode. And Zach, as for you, my friend, I will talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast.vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.